I need to let you know something. Last night at 11.30, my sweet mother-in-law went to be with the Lord Jesus. Becky's not here today, as you can imagine. We, um, we haven't been to bed yet, so it's been a sleepless night for us. But um, something it's, that is um, pretty incredible. It's been about a two-month journey for us since she suffered a stroke on October 4th, if you'll pardon this personal moment. But um, <clears throat> she's uh, been in decline and uh, continually that was the case, and we knew what was happening as she went into hospice. And even the last couple of days, it reached the point she was not able to speak to us at all. She could look at us. She could nod yes, and then she would try to maybe talk in some way. I even took a pad yesterday to see if she could write something out, and that wasn't successful either. Last night, we knew we were getting, getting closer, and uh, Becky was on one side of the bed and actually sitting on the bed and was... Um, pretty weepy because her mother was in such a state of decline, <clears throat> and uh, we were trying to understand. She was trying to say something to us, and so finally, she, she did it like this. It was at 9.30 last night. She put her two fingers to her lips, and that was about all the energy she, she had, put two fingers to her lips, and she pointed to Becky, and she waved. And so Becky said, Mom, are you kissing me goodbye? And she went, and then she moved her eyes over to the other side, and she looked at me, and she mouthed, I love you, and she waved goodbye. Isn't it amazing how people know that? And two hours later, she was gone. And so we are so thankful that today she's in the presence of the Lord Jesus. So I'm a little raw today, okay? That could be good news or bad news. I'm not sure which. It could be either. But um, as you can imagine, emotions are a little raw, so I've got my Kleenex here, and I'm, I'm ready to go. How many of you are going to pray for your pastor today as I open the Word? Yeah. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to try to not be so long today, long-winded. <clears throat> and then we're going to go to the table of the Lord at the end of this service. Pastor Michael is going to lead us as we go to the table of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1 <clears throat> says this. These are the last words of David. I was reading that because I have been, First and Second Samuel have been a real focus of mine actually over the last year. And I came to that, I got these are the last words of David. And I stopped right there. Because you have to know, when someone prefaces anything they are about to say by saying it, making it known, these are their, their last words, just as we experienced last night. These are, it's, it's going to be incredibly significant. It adds significance to what they're about to say. Because here's a man who's lived his life, had an incredible journey, phenomenal things have, have taken place, and now he's at the end of his days. And whatever he's about to say at this moment has to be incredibly important. Now, having served this fellowship over 37 years, I've had many times uh, where I have heard the last words of people from this fellowship and was there when many of them actually passed away. When you experience that last moment with someone and you hear their last words, you don't take it lightly. It has incredible significance because this is what is said at the end of their journey. And you realize that at the end of it all, when it was all said and done, what they're telling you now is really what mattered the most. It was just a, a few years ago that in the house right across the street from our home, 
A teenage daughter hanged herself in her own bedroom. And I often have looked out my window where my study is in my home, right across at that house, and I've wondered many times, I wonder what her last words were. I just can't imagine what she was thinking. Young or old, regardless of the length of that life or journey, it's what's said in the final moments that reflect your value system. In other words, you're going to come to that moment and say, this is what matters most to me. This is what has been incredibly important to me, and it reflects who you really are. And I've wondered about myself. If I were in my last moments, what would my words be? Well, I can tell you what they would have been on March the 8th, 1993, when a man and his female partner somehow managed to get into my hotel room in Mobile, Alabama, and he held me at gunpoint while she gathered the few possessions that I had on me. And once I realized I was potentially facing the last few seconds of of my own life, I know what that is, to think this may be it, the last few literally seconds of life on earth. I can tell you exactly what my words were, exactly what I was thinking and what I was saying, at least to myself. My first thoughts went to my wife, as you can imagine. Any loving husband would think that. And, and how she's going to go on from this point. I began thinking about the possibility of what's, gonna, what's this going to mean for her. And, and how, what she needs to do initially and then going on forward. And then, of course, my next thought went to my two children, who at that time were 10 years and 5 years old. And, and I pled with God, not so much for my own life, but I pled, pled with God for his safety and protection over my family. And I honestly, I couldn't imagine how they could get along without me. That was my thought also. But it was going to be up to God to make up the difference. And those would have been my final words or thoughts in 1993, and I'm sure it would be much the same today, except there would be a great addition to that. If I were facing my last moments, I would be having thoughts and expressions of love for this fellowship that Becky and I love so deeply as we've spent the whole of our adult lives with the honor of serving this fellowship. And it has been our joy and our privilege and our honor. So we come here to David in 2 Samuel. And we wonder, what would he say for his final words of life? All of all the possibilities that could be mentioned, of all the things he could say, what did he say at this moment? Would he remember the day that Samuel poured oil on his head and took him from being a shepherd boy When his own father had forgotten him, God still saw him on the side of a Bethlehem mountain. He said, you know what? You're going to be the next king. Would that be the moment that he would recall in his final moments? Was it the famous moment that we all know so well when he took the five stones and a slingshot and he slayed Goliath? Was that what he was going to recall as his final words and his final final moments? Or what about the day that his boss was throwing spears at him and relentlessly pursuing him to kill him? Or or would it be the day that after 500 years he finally liberated Jerusalem for the first time? Is that what he would be talking about? Are those the things that would have been the most important in the colorful life of David? Maybe it was the day when he set his eyes for the first time in Obed-Edom's house on the Ark of the Covenant, and he remembers seeing the place where Moses and Aaron got all the dimensions and all, of, all that they needed for that. No, that's, that's not what comes to mind at the end of his days. David, in his final words, tells us a story of a couple of mighty men who did something for him. And I want us to consider this for just a few moments and a couple of things that are going to come out of it that I hope is going to help some of us today. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, the Bible tells us about three mighty men 
who actually began to hear David speak. Actually, it might be more true to say they were hearing him think out loud or as if he was wishing out loud. And it goes something like this as David begins to give his final words. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Once during the harvest, when David was at the cave of Adullam, the Philistine army was camped in the valley of Rephaim. The three who were among the thirty, an elite group among David's fighting men, went down to meet him there. David was staying in the stronghold at the time, and a Philistine detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. And David just simply remarked longingly to his men, Oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, and brought it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. And the Lord forbid, he says, that I should drink this, he exclaimed. This water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. Of all the stories that he could tell, of all of the events that took place in his life, this is the story that he says in his final days, in his, in his last words. Now let's understand something about these three mighty men of David's. These dudes were serious. I mean, they were incredibly serious. They're the kind of guys you want to have with you in battle. In fact, if you just take a quick look at their names, you understand why these guys are fighting men. The first one's given to us in verse 8. There's Jashobium the Hackmanite. Hello? I mean, what was his mama thinking? Jashobium the Hackmanite. She named her son that, but in doing that, she had to know she was setting his course for life. That boy's going to have to fight with a name like that. Amen. And look at the next guy. Verse 9 tells us there is, tells us there is Eleazar, son of, this version says Dodai. Every other version I've found says it's Dodo. That's his name. I mean, come on. These guys have got to be fighters. And the Bible tells us that these guys could fight entire armies. Two of them stood with David in a lentil field so the enemy could not come. And then there's actually scriptural records speaking of a snowy pit where one of them goes up and goes in and beats a lion. These guys were serious about it. They were talking real men here. That's what we're talking about. And these are the guys that went with David into battle. They met him in a cave in Adullam, and they would walk him all the way to the end of his journey. We, we read it, and, it, and it went like this. David's thinking, man... I just wish I had some of that water from the wells of Bethlehem. I, I just need a drink from the well. And the Bible tells us this, and I want you to hear this carefully this morning, that though it was never a command, just a, a craving that David expressed, his three mighty men said to each other, in fact, in fact, I can almost see it in my playful imagination. I can, they're sitting around, they, they hear David the king say that, and I can hear see one looking at the other one like, you think of what I'm thinking? If he wants it. Yeah, you down? You down for this? Yeah. And so they go, and they break through the enemy line, and they go into Bethlehem, because at that time it was being controlled by the Philistines. And they get into the enemy lines, and they get some kind of container of water, and they bring it back to David. Now, just to put it all clearly into perspective for us today, it's seven miles away, okay? 
And who knows what kind of strategy that they had to engage in to make this happen as they're breaking through enemy lines just to go get some water. Who knows what kind of danger that they really encountered going behind enemy lines. You know, this was not like a, this was not like a Starbucks run, okay? Where we do that kind of thing all the time. This is not this was serious. This was not getting a venti caramel macchiato, whatever that is. Someone's told me about it. I have no idea what it is. This was getting water from Bethlehem, which is what their king wanted and was craving and they could have easily died on this mission. It was a death mission for sure. And of all the stories of David's life, out of all the wealth of experiences in his final moments of life, this is the story that he remembers. And you have to ask, why this story? Why is this the one that comes to mind? Well, I want us to explore a couple of ideas that may help us today. Obviously, David had an incredibly strong and developed relationship with these three mighty men of battle. And the first of a couple of points I want to give you, I don't know how many I'll get to, but let's plan on a couple. Number one is this. The greater the relationship, the less need you have for rules in that relationship. Say that with me. Is it up there? Can we have it on the screen? No, we don't. The greater the relationship, the less need you have for rules in that relationship. This effort of getting water for David was not based upon a command. He did not order them to go get him some water. It was as if David was simply thinking out loud or wishing out loud. It's somewhat reminiscent of Isaiah in his sixth chapter where he is listening to the Trinity when they are saying, whom shall we send and who will go? And remember the famous words of Isaiah where he said, here am I, Lord, send me. And they weren't even talking to Isaiah. But it seems like the greater the relationship, the less need there is for rules in that relationship. You know, I I don't need a a list of rules to, to love my wife. Because the relationship is strong. I don't have to have a, a piece of paper that tells me every day, okay, when she gets up, say, I love you. I love you, Becky, okay? And you look lovely this morning at 6 a.m. And you look lovely this morning at 6 a.m. I don't have to have that. Because the greater the relationship, the less need there is for those rules to guide that relationship. Now, to be honest, as pastors, we often have to put some rules in place for troubled marriages. That happens all the time. When the relationship is weak and when it needs some infrastructure and some structure put in place, we may say, uh, get a direct deposit on the check so that you don't gamble it all away, bucko, or something like that. Or we may say, call on your way home. We may put all kinds of things in place when we're dealing with couples whose relationship is weakening or crumbling or, or struggling because the worse the relationship is, the more need there is for rules and for some sort of structure. You have to set rules in place so that it can be uh, constructed or, or, or reconstructed in a, in a healthy way. Why do you think there's instructions on all these things that we buy? Some of you are in the process of Christmas shopping even now, and, and you look at the packages. Have you ever really looked at the warning labels and the rules 
on these things that, that you buy. And the reason they have to put these rules on here is because they don't know who's opening up the package and what you could potentially do with the stuff. And the manufacturer is not in a relationship with you. They don't know you. So they have to give you a list of rules on what you need to do so that you don't do something stupid and bring a lawsuit to them. So everything has some sort of warning label on it because they don't know who you are. And as weird as it might seem, when I look inside the case that houses my drill that I have at house, it literally says, this is not meant for dental use. (laughs) And I go, no kidding. And you have to tell me that? Why? You don't think I? Because you don't know me. They don't know me. I mean, who, who knows? Someone says, oh, they drilled my, you know, a hole in my tooth. Well, here's a drill. Where's your tooth? I mean, p- people might do that. And so you start looking at other things in the house, and you discover that the iron that you have has a warning label. It's very nice. It says, do not iron clothes while they're on your body. <laughs> then don't you have to want, do people really do that? Well, my leg feels really hot today. Don't you wonder why people are doing that? Now, we live in Fort Worth, Texas, where we know what it is to have several days of, of uh, over 100-degree weather. Can I get a witness to that? Are you, yeah. You wouldn't know it today, but we know what that's like. And I, I've noticed in the parking lot of the church here, many of you have those silver things that you put in the, um, in, in the front windshield, and it keeps the sun from melting the inside of your car in our Texas heat, and hopefully it's a little more bearable uh, when you get in. And many of those things, if you look at the warning label, they literally say, do not drive with the sun shield in place. Wow, everything's silver today. wonder what's going on. But the best one of all of them is this. It's on baby strollers. Some of you have seen it. Baby strollers. The warning says, take child out before folding the stroller and putting it away. <laughs> Why are these warning labels there? It's because there is no relationship between that manufacturer and you and I, and they dare not assume that you and I know anything. They have no idea what my, and my guess is the reason those warning labels are on there is they've had some sort of experience that tells them they need to put those labels on there as mystifying as it might be to you and I. And what we see in our story is that these men who have walked with David for almost two decades didn't need to be told that he needed water. They simply hear him thinking out loud, as it were, or, or, or wishing out loud. They didn't need a command. All they needed was the king desiring something, and that was all that was necessary for them to swing into action. Selah. Are you getting it yet? Okay, I'll help you. Many of you are familiar with the ministry of Dr. Tony Evans. I've heard him make a point from 1 John chapter 2 where he says, if someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. Verse 5 says, but those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we are living in him. Notice the difference. Verse 4 talks about commandments. There are those who have to have commands. And then verse 5 talks about those who simply need the word. Whoever keeps God's word truly shows how completely they love him. What he was saying was this. The more we grow toward the Lord, the less we need the commands. All we need to do is hear his word. Can I get an amen to that today? 
The more mature we are in Christ, the less we need the commands of, oh, guess what? You need to not go here. That's not good for you. You need to be sure you're not hanging out with that person. It's not good. Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't say this. Don't go there. All you need, you don't need the commands. You simply need to hear the word of the Lord. And this was true with my, I know even with my own dad. I, most of you know I grew up in the home of a pastor. My folks would, would say that they trained us, trained me for ministry since I was a pup. It's all we ever knew was, was ministry in, in the house in which I was raised. I watched and I observed and I figured out a few things uh, eventually. Sometimes I'm a slow learner. But in the early years, he would say, now, Dan, you need to do it like this. Do this this way. This is how we do it. This is how we do it in church leadership. It looks like this. You need to handle it like this. Don't do that. This is, how, this is the right path. This is the wrong path. And after a while, particularly after I got into my teens and I became heavily involved in, in, in ministry with my folks, even in my teens, I started directing the choir when I was 12 years old. And I was involved every Sunday in music leadership with them all those years. And after I kind of began to get the rhythm of it, I, I didn't need my dad to tell me that. I didn't need for him to tell me what I needed to do to help lift his load and the burden he was carrying of of the weight of church leadership. I did it because I loved him. I did it because I wanted to help him. It was done not because of a command. It was done out of my love for him. Hear me, church. The more you grow in relationship, not only with your natural father, but with your heavenly father, the less commands you need because your life is not based upon a command. It's based upon pleasing him and him alone whom you love and serve. It's not a matter of God having to give commands. It's a matter of the posturing of our hearts being that which says, God, I'm yours to command where you lead me. I will go where you want me to go, and I will do what you want me to do. That's why, church, the greater the relationship, the less need there is for rules. Let me give you the other one. The deeper the friendship, the greater the availability. The deeper the friendship, the greater the availability. Let me, let me unpack it this way. Let's say if I have a relationship with Pastor Michael, and, and we do, and he says, Pastor Dan, I'd like to talk to you. But if I don't know him... I'm going to give him my number, but the number that I'm going to give him will get him through to the church line somehow. He's going to get 817, 581, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he might have to go through a couple of people before, before I decide if I'm going to talk to him. And he's probably going to have to deal with Priscilla somewhere along the way to see if he can, if he can talk to me or if I decide I'm going to call him back. But if I trust him, even a little bit, and, and maybe I do, I mean, he looks like he's you know, got it kind of together, and I decide maybe, maybe I'll talk to him. I might say, here's my phone number, 817 We are on the internet. I'm not going to give that number out, okay? And even with that, I, I have the option of listening to the answering machine and, and, and deciding if I'm going to take his call or not. You know, man, he just keeps calling. Why is he calling me all the time? I don't know. I don't know if I want to talk. I have that option. But if I truly want to make myself available to him, what number am I going to give him? Sure, give him the cell phone number because that number is not with me just when I'm at the house. It's not with me just when I'm at the office. It's on me pretty much 24-7. So if I'm keeping distance or I'm not really sure what he wants or if he's driving me crazy, he gets the office number, right? If, I, if I'm trying to reach out a little bit to him and, and I want to be somewhat available, he gets the home number.
But if he gets the cell number, I'm saying, yeah, I, uh, yeah I, I'm available to you. And I want you to have access for us to be able to talk. Because the greater the friendship, the, excuse me, the deeper the friendship, the greater the availability. So when we apply this principle to our spiritual lives, we may be thinking this morning, you may be thinking, oh, yeah, I've got a hotline to heaven. It's great. Hallelujah. Jesus on the main line. Tell him what you want. Call him up. Whatever, however you remember that song. But actually, I'm thinking about it the other way around. Not, is, not what his availability is to me. I think the question is, what is our availability to him? Sundays only? Is that the only time you're available to him? That's like giving him your office number. Uh, but, but when you truly walk with God, it means that he can speak with you and you are listening to him and you are available to him any day, any time, any circumstance, any way he wants to speak to you. Can you say amen to that today? God, you can talk to me at the office. You can talk to me at the fast food place. You can talk to me during my commute to work. You can talk to me when I'm on an airplane. Whatever you want to say, anytime you want to say it. And here's the wonderful thing about God is we have that kind of relationship. You know God doesn't need a church to talk to us. Did you know that? He doesn't need all these instruments as wonderful as they are, the musicians, the singers, and the choir. He doesn't need all of that because he's available. And David's not even talking to anybody. He's just thinking out loud. Man, I wish I had some of that water from Bethlehem. Those who were in relationships said, hot dog, let's go. Seven miles, big deal. Past the enemy lines, no problem. If it's what he wants, it's what he gets. And I bring you now to the conclusion of the story. They come back as I go to 2 Samuel 23, verse 16. We read it earlier. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. And brought it back to David. Now imagine this scene. David, guess what we've got? Bam! You didn't expect that, did you? There it is. It's just what you wanted. And look what happens. But he refused to drink it. Instead, what did he do? He poured it out as an offering to the Lord. Now, let's just be honest about this. If I'm one of the three mighty men who has just risked his life, hauled myself seven miles each way, the story, the scripture today would look something more like this. Verse 16a. You did not just do that. Or it might be 16B. What? Do you know what we just did for you? I mean, I would not be standing there singing, Hallelujah, I understand what you're doing. I wouldn't be doing that. It would be more like, hold me back. Enemy line nothing. This guy's going down after all we did to help him. You bring him the water. What you absolutely believed he wanted what you were convinced would be the thing that would please his heart and please him, what he wanted. Look at your motivation for it. And what does he do? He pours it out on the ground. Now, you and I would be going, you don't don't understand what we just went through for you, man. 
and you just take our sacrifice and you just pour it out on the ground? Why did you do that? Church, there is only one way to process this, and I doubt you're going to like it. But you don't have any more choices in this matter than I do, and it is this. But we absolutely must embrace. He's the king, and he can do whatever he wants. That was about the most lame amen I've had all year. I said, he's the king, and he can do whatever he wants. And He can do whatever he wants with what we give him. If he pours it out, what you have given to him sacrificially, if he pours it out, and guess what? He's the king. And take it another step. If he takes what you have given sacrificially and he gives it to someone else, guess what? He's the king. The problem you and I have is that when we give ourselves to him or we give our gifts to him or our offering to him, we do it with expectation of what he's going to do with it. I mean, we went and got him water, the water he wanted from the well he wanted, having listened to him have a craving or or, or a desire and then having my own intense desire to please him and I sacrificed and I, I laid my life on the line so I bring it to him and what do I expect? What do I think he's gonna do? I, first of all, I expect some affirmation. Good job, damn man. You're the dude. That's, that's really am- some kind of affirmation, some acknowledgement of what I've done and the effort I've given to it. And I expect him to be enormously grateful. And I certainly expect him to drink it. You know, I'm waiting for the, hey, you know, you guys are awesome. That's just incredible. And the king, after all we did, takes it is it on the ground? Because he's the king and he can do whatever he wants to do with whatever we give him. The thing that messes up the lives of so many people and that can embitter Christians is that we come to God with our preconceived ideas that God, if I present you my Bible college degree, then surely I will be in the ministry. And sometimes God goes, thank you very much, and he puts it aside. You go, whoa, 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 that's four years there. There was tuition involved with that. Like, you know, I'm still in debt for that. But if he's the king, church, he can do whatever he wants. Or have we told him, Lord, this is what I'm doing, and you need to sign off on this. When I was a kid, we had a church word that we used a lot. You don't hear much about it these days. At least I hear it very rarely. The concept behind this word was written into so many of our songs and our our hymns. Not so much today. In fact, some of the writers, songwriters, Christian and gospel songwriters of just a few years ago, I've heard them express the lack of this word and this concept in some of our music today. And the word was basically this, consecration. Consecration. Which basically means it's something you have set apart for God. You may be consecrating yourself for service in the church or for consecrating yourself for missions work or or for whatever. 
Some may have sacrificed or, or, or consecrated time for fasting and praying. All that's a good thing to do. But you know what true consecration is, church? It's when you sign the bottom of a blank piece of paper and you hand it to him and you say, God, here it is with my signature and my commitment on the bottom. And you can fill in any detail you want to put on this paper because your wish is my command. But what we tend to do is this. We say, I'll go here. I'll go there. Please don't send me to Africa. Don't send me to certain parts of the world. I'm not going there. And we need to get that straight now, Lord. We need to. I'll do this, but I'm not doing that. Put, uh, and and on, when you're writing those things on that, be sure you put those things on there, God, and, and I'll sign it. And, and, and also, do you agree to my terms and conditions? But that's not how it works, church. Because what I'm trying to get all of us to understand at the deepest possible level of our lives, is this. He is the king. I said, Jesus is the king. I said, Jesus is the king. And he can do whatever he wants with us, those of us who have committed our lives to him. Is there anything close to an amen in this house today? So if he decides to pour out the water of your sacrifice, he can do that because he's the king. If you give him your Bible college degree and he says, fine, go work in retail. What? I'm anointed. I can preach a great sermon. I don't want to sell stuff. God says, you don't need a pulpit. You just need to witness where I've placed you. If he's the king, he can place you wherever he wants to place you. He can do with you whatever he wants to do if we are committed to his authority and his lordship. But we have these preconceived ideas that with what we present to him, He's got to do what we expect. And we have this, this thought sometimes of, as we remember Abraham and Isaac. I know you remember that story. You know, give up Isaac. And Abraham puts his son on the altar and he takes the knife and, 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 and he lifts it high and he starts to bring it down. And, and what happens? The angel stops him. But can I just tell you from my own experience, sometimes there's no angel there. And sometimes I've taken the knife and I lift it high and I'm starting to look around for the angel that's, that's, that's going to stop this. And, 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 and I'm going, I, I thought this was supposed to be like Genesis 22, not like you really want this dead. Because I've had vision for this, God. I've, I've had dreams for this, God. And God says, okay, bring the knife down. And I'm looking around for the angel that's going to that stop me and he's not there because they're all playing music in heaven and I don't want to hear music right now. I need a knife-stopping angel right now is what I need. And then there it goes. And God is killing, my God, all of our preconceived ideas, all of our expectations of what he is going to do with what we bring to him. Because church, I say it again, he's the king and he can do whatever he wants. I have to tell you, I've had my own, lots of my own preconceived ideas. And typically mine goes something like this. Lord, here's my prayer list today. Here's the people that I'm praying to get saved 
Here are the miracles that I'm expecting for this person and that person, and here's a list of miracles for my own life and my own family, and I ask you now, and I'm expecting and believing that it will happen before sundown today, in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever prayed a prayer like that? Am I the only one? I'm the only one. Okay. Then I'm just preaching to me today. But if you've got any traction at all in your walk with God, you know full well that God is not a bit concerned about your calendar and your schedule. He's just not. You'd like for him to be, but he's not. And sometimes, church, our reality is that we wait for years for God to move. We wait far longer than we expect to have to wait for God to do, which totally messes up all of my preconceived ideas. But he's the king, and he can do whatever he wants. And I'm trusting the Spirit of God today to reveal to you that which he's asking of you, to be as simple as he wants you to not be afraid to lift your hands and worship He's not trying to change your background or where you come, church you came from or move you into a certain denomination. No, he just wants to be the king in your life and wants your worship today. It may be as simple as calling you to a deeper prayer life or coming to the hour of prayer at 6 p.m. on Sunday evening or, you know, but God, I've got all my reasons. That's, that, you know, I'm, I'm busy doing this at that hour. I don't really like the format of that service. Dan has a tendency to go on too long sometimes, and that's true. It's not convenient for me. Prayer meeting, God, I gave you Sunday morning. Don't you appreciate that? But if God is asking that of you, you have to recognize he's the king. He can do whatever he wants with whatever he's asking of you. If he's the king, the answer is always yes. If he's the king, the answer is always It was C.S. Lewis who said, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I could have gotten that from a bottle of wine, he said. He says, if you want a religion to make you comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. And yet the fact remains, folks, the greatest joy of living comes from serving Jesus. The greatest joy of living comes from serving Jesus. Walking through the last two months of our lives. By the way, we'll get plans finalized and it will be posted on the church website. Probably a service on Wednesday or Thursday. I, I, I don't know yet. Uh, Becky and I will determine that in the few, next few hours. It will be posted on the church website. Thank you for your loving support. But walking through the last two months, I've found this statement to be so true as I've watched my precious, precious mother-in-law fading physically. I've said, you know what? Living and living for and loving Jesus is the only way to live, and it is certainly the only way to die. My goodness gracious. I watched a woman who loved Jesus so passionately, she could not wait. I've never seen more anticipation in someone to be ready to go to heaven. She was so anxious to go to heaven, so believed. She spent her entire life believing that Jesus loved her, died for her, and he's preparing a home for her in heaven. And today, can I tell you, my dear sweet mother-in-law's got that guitar all tuned up and she's strumming away, going after it. If you ever went to her little apartment, that guitar was sitting right out where she could get to it quickly. And if you even dared to let your eyes look at it, she was picking it up and your next hour was gone. She didn't sing one song. 
she, she didn't stop till 10 or 12 or more until you finally figured out a way to get out of there one way or another. Oh, she loved singing the gospel. Because you know what? My mother-in-law understood he's the king. And he has the right to rule and reign in my life. Some of you have truly run through enemy lines. You could have served in the Red Cross or the Peace Corps. You could have worked in the most war-torn nations of this world. You could be Warren Buffett and give 99% of all your money away. And when you present it to the Lord, he pours it out and basically says this to you. It's not what you do for me. It's what I have done for you. Can I remind you today as we prepare to go to the table of the Lord, and the ushers are going to be prepared to service the elements of communion. Pastor Michael is going to come in just a second. Christians, can I speak to you today? The cross must always and ever be the central and focus point of everything we say and do. The cross of Jesus amidst all the other things that can come into our minds and our hearts and discussions and theological discussions and, and all the things we want to talk about, it all comes back to Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Amen to that today. And we must always come with hearts filled with gratitude that he has given everything for us, everything for us to cleanse us from our sin. That he is the sacrifice, the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. That his blood truly satisfied his father God. So that today when he looks at us, is anybody else today thankful that when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus Christ? Is anyone thankful for that today?